Welcome to the podcast of Seven Rivers Presbyterian Church in Lakanto, Florida. Our passion is to be a church that enjoys God, experiences His grace, and reflects His love to our community and beyond. To join our local body in financial support of this ministry, visit our website at sevenrivers.org. So what I'm going to do this morning is a little uncomfortable for me and a little different. Um, I'm really going to give a message that um, um, I first gave about 18 years ago in Augusta, Georgia. And now uh, when I have the opportunity to speak in various places, it's a message I often um, give that in this form I don't think I've ever given here. Um, because it's, it's really a somewhat more of a testimony, um, but it is a testimony of um, how the grace of God uh, changed the life of the pastor of this church and how the grace of God um, uh, changed our church. And we're in this, um, you know, who are we and where are we going moment in the life of our church. And uh, what I'm going to talk about really is what is the special sauce of Seven Rivers Church. Um, so you got it? So why don't you stand and I'm going to read uh, from two scriptures that powerful in, uh, in, in my life. Starting at Philippians chapter 3 and the fourth verse. Though I myself have reason, Paul, this is the Apostle Paul writing, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Isn't that good? See what he's saying? If you think you're really accomplished and you could, your, your, your life record scores points with God, I have more points than you do. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, I persecuted the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I counted everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish. All my credentials, he says, they're garbage. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul's saying, all the righteousness I've accumulated, garbage. There's another righteousness. It's a righteousness that comes from God, not that we produce. And you find Paul saying the same thing in Romans chapter one, and that's where I read now just two verses. This is a verse, particularly the ones that God used to rock my world. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and to the Greek, to all the Gentiles. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith 
for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. He says the same thing there. There is a righteousness that we do not produce and offer to God. There is a righteousness that God produces and freely gives to us. God, only you can open our hearts and minds. Only you can make us new. Uh, would you do it? Would you, um, would you cause us to have a powerful experience of not only discerning the truth, but actually feeling and experiencing being loved by you? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Have you experienced the power of the gospel? I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. Have you experienced the power of God? Power matters. It's a terrible thing to be without power. You're a father. You have a little girl. You have a daughter. She's a teenager. And she's bulimic. And uh, she is wasting away before your eyes. And every resource you can find uh, is pledged to the task of getting her out of this horrific cycle. Whether it's some um, counseling help, whether it's physical, you know, medicine, what, whatever is brought to bear, and yet her life is slipping away, you have no what? Power to change the outcome. You're a, um, uh, you're, you're, um, um, you're a wife, and your husband doesn't like um, Jesus, um, is not a Jesus follower, and uh, does not like the church, and this affects your life and the life of your children, and you have no power uh, over that. Or you're a husband and your wife doesn't like you. Um, you have no power um, to change that. Or, or here's one, try this one on. You're a pastor, and no one's converted. Your preaching has no impact. You Imagine being in the military and, and, and firing out of your tank these shells that that hit other tanks. Your aim is, is good, but they don't explode. They don't do anything. They don't accomplish anything, right? You seem to have firepower, but there's, there's no impact at all. Well, I was pastor of this church for 10 years, and I had church members begin to come to me, and they were struggling. And they said, I'm trying hard, but I'm not getting anywhere. I, I'm the same person I was when I prayed to become a Christian. I still hate myself. I'm angry. Um, you know, I'm distant from my spouse. Where's the power? The Bible says if any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. But I'm not new. And I'm tired. Well, this provoked a crisis in me because I found as they were sitting across my desk, my advice was... Oh, well, I didn't know what to say other than maybe you need to do more Bible reading. Maybe here's a book. Um, try harder. Be more devoted. So worn out people, my advice to them was what? Just run harder. And they're already discouraged and, and defeated. You see, there wasn't a lack of effort, but there was a lack of progress. There was a lack of, of power. And even worse... I wasn't being transformed either. My relationship with God was stale. I didn't love my neighbors, which was hard to love them. I didn't even know them. Um, 
Our, ma- our marriage had a lot of struggle. My oldest son was quite angry. We started a Christian school and he made it very clear he didn't enjoy being a pioneer um, in, a, in this brand new venture. Um, you know, I came to this community to bring gospel change to a needy, broken community. And after 10 years, it was startling to discover that what most needed transforming in the community was me. I was more broken than the community I came to minister to. So what happened? What changed me? One verse from the Bible, or two verses. Romans chapter one, verses 16 and 17. There is a righteousness that comes from God. This is the verses, you know, Martin Luther died uh, in history. He died yesterday, February 18th, not yesterday. Um, in 1546, nobody strived harder than Martin Luther. Nobody was more devoted. Nobody was laying down their life more. When, when you were uh, the one, the, the, the priest who had to hear confession, you rude the day that Martin Luther stepped into your confessional because he would go for hours confessing his sins. And finally he would leave and the, the person <laughs> receiving it, God, Thank goodness, Luther's gone. And then he'd get, you know, 20 paces away and turn around and run back for an hour more. Um, So devoted was he to cleansing his soul and laboring to earn the favor of God. And yet, Luther, when he read Romans chapter 1, God opened his eyes and it hit him like a, a sledgehammer. We don't produce righteousness. God produces righteousness. And he gives it um, to us. That one verse, um, there's doctrinal words for that. In the, in, the, in the doctrine, we call that imputed righteousness. In other words, we have righteousness, but it's not our own. We didn't produce it. It's been imputed to us. It's like somebody who inherits wealth, right? They can stutter around like they're, well, you know, like they're wealthy, but they didn't earn it. They had nothing to do with it. It was imputed to them. Essentially, it was put in their account, right? Yet it's really theirs, right? So we have righteousness if we belong to Jesus. But it's been imputed to us. We didn't produce that righteousness. We can't produce that righteousness. Imputed, it's called. Or another word in theology, it's called alien righteousness. In other words, it's a righteousness that was not our own that's been given um, to us. And that righteousness, that alien righteousness, changes your standing with God. And having grasped that, I discovered power in my life to change and power in this church that did not exist um, before. I love what a theologian, D.A. Carson, wrote. He said, I find it dangerous not to pant after God, not to have a desire or a longing for God and to be merely sa- and to be satisfied with a merely creedal Christianity. You know what creeds, creeds like? In other words, so much of Christianity is learn the truth so that you can say, I believe the truth, I subscribe to the truth. And once I've done that, then I got it. I'm a Christian because I can spout the creeds and I believe them. He says it's dangerous not to to thirst for God and be satisfied with merely creedal Christianity. It's kosher, but it's complacent. It's orthodox, but it's ossified. It's sound, but it's soundly asleep. Question is, have you been awakened by the grace of God? Have you been awakened by imputed 
righteousness. You ready to go? Let's go there together. Got a sermon outline. We're going to talk about how gospel power, the gospel has the power to transform the most resistant. So who's the most resistant? The biker? The hell's angel? Who's the most resistant? Uh, the, uh, the wealthy, um, successful CEO who's made it and is pandered to by everyone. Who is the most resistant? Well, the pastor. Pastors and church people are the most resistant people because they're the most, uh, they're, the, they're the one group that could most easily say, I am more righteous than other people, right? So what is this gospel that can actually change the most resistant? Um, and that's what I wanna, we want to discover if the pastor is to be an agent of gospel impact, it only stands to reason they need to experience that gospel themselves. I can tell you that I thought I had the gospel because I not only grew up in church, I grew up in Christian school, um, I had Christian parents, I went to a Christian college, I went to a Christian graduate school. Who do I sound like? The Apostle Paul, right? I was not from the tribe of Benjamin, however, but... Um, I could, I could tell you all my credentials. And not only on top of that, I became a pastor. So get the gospel. I thought it was non-Christians who needed the gospel. That was my job, is to give unbelievers the gospel. Listen, I knew that Jesus died for my sins. I was converted. I was a Christian. I knew that when I died, I would go to heaven. Because Jesus died on the cross. My sins were paid for by him. Jesus would not hold those sins against me, but I didn't believe that God liked me. I didn't believe that God delighted in me. I didn't think he was proud of me. I didn't think I had the face of God, right? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. What is that? That's a smile. I didn't think I had his affection. I had his forgiveness. That's what I had. Um, and I'll tell you something I certainly didn't believe that upon my death I would ever hear the words well done well done good and faithful servant how in the world could someone like me ever be worthy of those words when I knew all the rottenness that existed inside of me so I was converted but well done are you kidding if I was going to get that I was going to have to hustle 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 right so what I've come to learn is that few Christians get the gospel. We don't believe that Christ is our righteousness. Most preaching I've discovered is not about what Christ has done for us, but what we are supposed to do. Every vacation, when I'd go with my kids and we'd visit other churches, when the sermon was over, I'd, we'd get the kids back in the car and I'd say, what was missing from that sermon? And sometimes they just say, anything that would keep me awake. Um, but once they learned the drill, they would usually say, Jesus, that's what was missing in that sermon. Let me tell you what I mean. Went to a fabulous um, church. I learned so much from this church. It was a church that had 20,000 um, members and uh, to learn a lot about leadership and things at that church. But I remember going there, bringing all my whole family, we're sitting there, and that uh, message happened to be on the, you know, the godly husband, the Christian husband. Like, oh great, 
this is really contribute to our vacation. Um, and the pastor laid out the five tenets, you know, of what a godly husband was from God's word. And every one of those things was true. And every one of those things came from the word of God. And when he was finished, you know, I just turned to my wife and said, we're screwed. <laughs> because I don't do any of those things. Some of them I try to do. Some of them I probably don't try to do that much. But I'm, I don't accomplish any one of those things. And what was missing from that sermon? Jesus, the pastor didn't tell us that the only godly husband, the only one who does it right, the only one who loves perfectly is Jesus. And only when you experience his love does it change you in such a way that you can love. That was all left out. All we got was go love like Jesus. Go love, go love, go love, go love, go love. You see the difference? Something I learned years after I started ministry is this phrase that the indicative precedes the imperative and the order can never be reversed. No, how many of you know what that means? Neither did I, um, but I determined to use it because it would make me look intelligent. Um, the indicative precedes the imperative. So we know what imperatives are, that's do. Do this, do that, do this, do that. Does the Bible have imperatives? Has a bunch of them, right? The Bible all over the place says, here's stuff you shouldn't do, right? Thou shalt what? Not, right? And there's all this stuff you should do. Thou shalt, thou shalt, thou shalt, thou shalt. All over the Bible, there's imperatives. So does God do this? What, what I, just, I just referred to, a place where you can find 10 imperatives all lined up right in a row. What do we call that? The 10 commandments, right? So is this what God says? Thou shalt not have any other gods before me. Thou shalt not make graven images. Thou shalt, you know, remember the Sabbath day. Thou shalt not, um, you know, thou shalt honor thy, thy father and mother. Thou shalt not, you know, covet and steal and commit adultery and murder and bear false witness. And if you do all those things, then I will be your deliverer. Is that how it goes? No, the indicative precedes those imperatives. Before those 10 commandments, there's something else that God says. We learn the 10 commandments, but we don't learn what he says before that. What does he say right before the Ten Commandments? I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Have you ever heard of those guys? Have you come to church for the last year? <laughs> That's what we've preached on for the last year. Please tell me you've heard of those guys. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. In other words, I'm the God who chose you. You were nothing. Abraham was an idol worshiper. Out of your paganism, I came to you. I chose you. I made you. I made you a family, right? And then guess what I did? I rescued you out of Egypt. I rescued you out of bondage and slavery. I have loved you. Therefore, what? Don't have any other gods before me. Therefore, right? Then come all the imperatives. The indicative precedes the imperatives. And the order can never be reversed. And yet in so many churches, all you'll hear is imperatives, 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 leaving the idea that the, uh, the, the, the Christian life is about doing what you're supposed to do so that you can earn favor with God. That's how I grew up. That's what I believed. 
That's how I've pastored. Um, listen, um, so most Christians give assent to salvation by faith alone. Okay? If you ask a Christian, uh, how are you going to be right with God? They'll say, Jesus died for my sins. Um, I contribute nothing, salvation by faith alone, but we don't believe we're made right with God by Jesus' righteousness alone. Um, you got it? We think we have merit. We, the, the very, you know, what is grace? Grace is unmerited favor. But we think we have merit, right? And how can you tell that Christians think they have merit? Who are, who are roundly seen by Americans as being the most proud, self-righteous people? Self-righteous. Christians. Churchgoers. Often sneering at other people because they're so unrighteous. We think we have merit. How else would you explain our pride self-righteousness, our inability to see our sin and our critical spirit toward others. We can't go in the grocery store line, the express line where you're only allowed to have what? Is it 10 items? That person's got a dozen eggs. That's 12. <laughs> that's not one, that's 12, right? We get mad because we count the items of the people in line ahead of us. It's a way of life. It's the way we are. It's, it's in built inside of us to try to find merit and worth comparing ourselves to other people. You're never going to find merit and worth if you compare yourself to the law of God. So what do you do? You compare yourself to other people, right? And that offers us some faint comfort. Every day you can open the news and it'll tell you the story of some rogue, some Jeffrey Epstein, some foul character. And every day you can get a little boost of, I'm better. I'm better than them. I'm better than most, right? We think we have merit. A people who say we are saved by grace and grace alone, we contribute nothing. And then a woman comes to church and her heels are too high and her dress is too short. Oh gosh, what does she think she is, right? Or maybe comes the opposite. Somebody else comes in shorts. Not only that, they're jean shorts, they're jorts. Um, <laughs> We're constantly comparing ourselves to other people. It's pathetic, right? Thinking that somehow it improves our record because maybe we're better than other people. What is Twitter? Twitter is nothing but uh, a, 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 someone stating a position and then everyone who follows them ripping that position, right? What's absent, you know, I often think what's absent from Fox News and CNN and Twitter is nobody ever goes on there and say, you know what's wrong with culture? Me. No, it's those damn, damnable Democrats. It's those damnable Republicans. That's what's wrong with culture. But nobody goes on and says, no, it's actually me. It's actually me. I'm what's broken. We think we have merit. Um, we actually think we, our good behavior puts God under obligation to us. Very sadly, a woman in our church, her righteousness was uh, that she had two sons and they were both um, preachers. And uh, she liked to tell about that and tell me about that and what they were doing. And, and I met them. They were delightful 
guys when I met them. And, and uh, then one day, um, um, word came that uh, one of her sons had divorced his wife, left his kids and her, uh, and that made her furious. On top of that, he had actually gotten remarried to a man. And she was so angry at him that she cut him off. She did not welcome him into her home. She wouldn't answer his phone calls. She wouldn't um, take his letters. Uh, he, she basically declared him no son of hers. But her anger at him was only exceeded at her anger at God. I raised my children right. I took them to Sunday school. I brought them to church. I taught them right morals, right? And, I, you know, and how could you allow this to happen? I did my part, you didn't do your part. And she never took communion in this church again. Um, God was under obligation because of all our merit, all our righteousness. Um, uh, learning what it means to repent of my righteousness was very hard for me because I grew up, the whole idea was to try to be righteous. But the Bible says all our righteousness as far as earning favor with God or, or, or being better than other people is as filthy rags. Have you heard that before? God says all your righteousness is filthy rags. Now filthy rags, you're thinking maybe in, in the garage there's always some rags that, that you wipe the oil up that's spilled from your car. Filthy rags. It's worse than that. It's, it's really gross actually. There's a lot of gross things in the Bible. It's very earthy. You know what a filthy rag that's being referred to? It's really a nice way of saying a menstrual. It was menstrual cloth. It was the cloth that captured the blood of menstruation. And that's a pretty powerful thing to say. All your merit, you know what its, its cumulative value is? Is the value of a menstrual cloth. That's what your righteousness is worth in terms of earning the favor of God. So I had to learn to repent of my righteousness when I thought the whole point was to be righteous. I thought the whole point was to live a righteous life, to try to be merit the favor of God. You know, almost everybody repents of their sins, even non-Christians. If a non-Christian, most non-Christians who steal feel bad about it. Many non-Christians who steal would give it back or make it right. It's not distinctly Christian to repent of your sins. What's distinctly Christian is to repent of your good deeds. Do you understand why I had trouble understanding that? Why do you have to repent if it was a good deed? Because at our core, our good deeds are about validating ourselves in front of God. So our good deeds are really about nullifying Christ's death and righteousness produced on our behalf. Our good deeds are offensive to God. Martin Luther, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm, when I sense moments that you're really not following me and you don't believe what I'm saying, then well, Luther said it. <laughs> I myself have been preaching and cultivating the message of grace for almost 20 years and still I feel the old clinging dirt of wanting to deal so with God that I may contribute something, something so that he will have to give me his grace in exchange for my holiness. And still I cannot get it into my head that I should surrender myself completely to sheer grace, yet I know that this is what I should and must do. Guy in our church, um, I, I said in the pastor's class, all our righteousness has the cumulative value in terms of earning favor with God. It has the value of, of filthy rags. And, and he said, wait a minute, wait a minute. So you're telling me 
Uh, I volunteered at the Special Olympics. I've done it for 12 years. And you could tell it was his righteousness, right? I love handicapped kids. I serve handicapped kids. Find a fault with that preacher. And uh, he says, is that really filthy rags? Um, I said, well, I don't know. Tell me why you do it. Why do I do it? He says, I do it because it makes me feel good. There you have it. You do it for yourself, ultimately. He told me himself. You don't do it for God's glory. You don't do it even for handicapped kids. You do it because it makes you feel good. Um, all our righteousness. You know, to, to learn that. Um, do, you, do you understand why it's so hard for pastors then to get the gospel? Because just on human terms, I'm way better than you guys, right? <laughs> And I'm kidding a lot. Do you see why it's so hard for Christians maybe to get this? Do you see why so many people in the Bible that are really converted were like the worst people? So a number of years ago where, where I was working out at the time, there was, a, um, there was an interesting coupling of two women that worked out together. One was a nun and one was a prostitute. Kind of sounds like a joke, right? A nun and a prostitute walk into a bar. Um, but it wasn't a joke. The nun had devoted her whole life uh, to be a sister in the Catholic Church, never married, married to the church, uh, serving others her entire life. She was an elderly woman at this point, and she was racked with guilt and shame and insecurity and did not know that God loved her. She had never done enough. She had never been pure enough or holy enough or good enough or servant enough. And she was just racked with a sense of insignificance, insecurity. Um, and, and she worked out every day with a prostitute. Now the prostitute had come to faith in Jesus. She'd given up um, prostitution. But guess what the prostitute never had any dare, uh, never dared to believe was that her life was righteous, right? That she had earned any points with God uh, by her life. She knew that if, if uh, a, a relationship with God and eternal life was ever granted to her, it would have nothing to do with her producing a righteous life. She only had one hope in this world, and that was what? Unmerited, unmerited, completely unmerited grace. And so every day when they worked out together, the prostitute preached grace to the nun. Um, most Christians are deeply insecure. Um, we base our assurance of our being right with God, our justification on our sanctification. In other words, we feel right with God based on whether we've sinned that day, whether we've been really holy that day, on, on our performance. If we're good, we're acceptable. What does that do to a child? How does that warp a child? Child, I'll give you my son, daughter, I'll give you my love, but you'll get my love on days when you obey, right? You'll get my love on days when you bring A's home on your report card, right? You'll get my love when you win at the track meet. None of this eighth place finish in our family. What does that do to a child? That warps a child, right? They know that you don't love your child, you love yourself and you're using the child, right? To validate yourself. And so it is with Christianity. Most Christians are warped um, because we think God is for us uh, when we've been good, right? Um, 
You know, we understand that Christ is our sin bearer, but not that he's our righteousness producer. We don't understand that, uh, we understand Christ took our sins away, but we don't think God likes us, loves us because we're sinners, you know, because we're a mess, because we disobey all the time, right? Um, We don't have any standing. Listen, 40 years I've asked the same question to every person who joins this church. If you were to die and stand before God and he were to say, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? Um, For half of the people, almost this goes, almost every single pastor's class I've taught for 40 years, half of the people give uh, something like a a non-Christian answer. They say, I've been a good person. I've always tried to do what God says. I, 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 I was a Methodist. I, you know, whatever. Uh, But it's I, I did something that, that merits God's favor. The other half give what I say is a partial Christian answer. They say, Jesus died for my sins. Jesus took my sins away. Nobody, I think one person in 40 years said, Jesus kept all the law of God for me. The law of God that I could not keep. He's the second Adam. The first Adam failed the test. Jesus, my older brother, came and passed the test. And all his righteousness is attributed to me. It's imputed to me. And I now possess it. And so I stand before God as righteous. And he says that if anyone confesses their sins, he is faithful and just to forgive their sins. So God cannot condemn me to hell because my sins have been paid for. I'm covered with the righteousness of Christ. Nobody says anything about the righteousness of Christ. I rest my case. We don't get it. And it causes deep insecurity. Young girl was teaching this stuff at a, at a high school camp and a young girl came up to me afterwards. She was so excited. And, uh, and she said, that rocked my world. That changed my life. That was so good because I have been living my life for myself. I get up in the morning and I go out the door and I make life about me. That is changing. I am now going to get up every morning and I am going to attempt to live my life in such a way that it would please God. I got it, didn't I? I said, no, sweetheart, we're on our way, but we're not there yet. I said, I don't want you to get up every morning and think about how you can go out in the world and attempt to please God with your obedience. I want you to get up every morning when your feet hit the floor and know that he's pleased with you before you've done anything. He's pleased with you because of what Jesus accomplished for you. He produced the righteousness that whatever you do this day, you can't produce. And in fact, you're the most sinful. If that day is the most sinful day you have in your entire life, when you lay your head on your pillow at night, he'll still be pleased with you. Got it? See the difference? Because you're covered with the righteousness of Christ. You don't have any merit and you're not gonna produce any. So most Christians don't experience God as an affectionate father. You see, the judge can bang the gavel and say to the criminal, you're forgiven. That's what we think God has done for us. We're gonna go to heaven because we're forgiven. But, you know, the judge doesn't forgive the criminal and then adopt them. He doesn't come around and hug them and say, hey, come on home to my house. Let's have dinner together. Matter of fact, why don't you move in? Become a part of my family. And we'll do life together. We don't experience God that way. We don't know his kiss. 
He's a satisfied judge, but we don't have his care, his affection, his generosity. And this was my story. I grew up with a lot of uh, feelings of inadequacy. I was the fifth of six children. Maybe that had to do with it. Maybe it had to do with it that I was really skinny uh, and I had buck teeth. Matter of fact, my older brother used to call me a saber-tooth toothpick. Um, <laughs> maybe it had to do with the fact that I had to wear orthopedic shoes. Um, um, my childhood, never had a pair of tennis shoes till I was, got to play middle school basketball. These sh- shoes were steel-lined, um, specially made just for me, which did serve a function playing football, tackle football in the front yard. <laughs> you wanted to tackle me, you paid a price. Um, maybe it was because my uh, siblings were all so accomplished. They all made National Honor Society. My parents went five of six of their kids were in National Honor Society. Gee, I wonder who didn't. Um, maybe it's because my brothers were great athletes. They were the MVP of all the sports they were in. They won state championships. They did all that stuff. Um, I think I chose to be a pastor because none of them did because I wanted to make a mark. I wanted to somehow stand out and prove that I was as worthy as they were. I would win God's favor with my righteousness, become a pastor, start a church, start a Christian school. So I drove myself and I drove the church, wanted to feel the smile of God. What I preached was kick butt Christianity. God's looking for a few good men. Let's take the hill, hands on the plow, no turning back. If you turn back, you're not worthy of the favor of God. Big problem with that is I had to face the fact that the fruit of the Spirit was absent in my life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I didn't love Jesus intimately and I was filled with anxiety. How can you not be anxious when you think you have to earn the favor of God? And God was kind enough to send messengers to tell me I was warped. One of them I married. (laughs) She was probably the the most wounded by by, um, my life. Puts a lot of pressure on a wife when her job is to validate you. We've told you before that uh, once a very young new member of our church, very young woman came to my office one day. She was trembling. Oh, how I wish everyone who came in my office was trembling. It's not to be. Um, and she, uh, she said to me, Pastor, my job at the bank, um, one day they were talking about the, the customer who's the biggest jerk. And, uh, and suddenly I realized they were talking about you. And I remember thinking, that is not possible. I am so patient with those idiots at the bank. <laughs> They screw up my account regularly and I bring in all my records and I point out line by line every one of their mistakes. You know, I came to realize that I treated people the way I thought God treated me. I thought he demanded perfection from me and I demanded perfection from others. Um, you know, my wife told me one time, she said, you know, I come home so angry because the screens were wrong in worship, because the bulletin had misprints in it. I said, and of course I, I, I would say something like, I mean, this doesn't honor God. 
You know, to be sloppy like that. It doesn't honor God. We represent God. We need to do better work than that. What was I really concerned about? How it made me look. And uh, you know what my wife would say? I love it when the church messes up. I love it when you call for a screen and they put the wrong one up. I love it when the sound stops working in the middle of the service. You know why? Because every time that happens, it tells me it's not such a well-oiled, polished machine. And you know what? That a, that, a, that a screw up like me can actually be a part of that church. She got it better than I did, didn't she? You know, it was the worst realization was that I didn't love the church people. Um, they didn't love me because I didn't love them. And my being a pastor was just using people in a massive project of self-validation. And you know what's worse than that is when you realize you use your wife and your kids for the same thing. And out of that, um, and out of that realization, I discovered Romans chapter one. Wait a second, I got it completely wrong. There's a righteousness that comes from God. God produces the righteousness, I don't. And that righteousness is freely given to me in such a way that when I possess it, God loves me. He delights in me, he has favor in me. And that changed everything. I began to rest in that. I began to believe I was beloved. Um, that I was a delighted son. I've told you before that, that God would look at me when I'd preach and he'd say, he's not very good. He's not as good as he thinks he is. <laughs> But you know what, that's my boy. That's my boy up there. I love that kid. Um, and you know what, it changed my marriage. I didn't demand my wife's validation. Um, changed my preaching. Less fear of criticism, more freedom. Changed my parenting. I didn't need to be validated by my children's performance. I'm not telling you I, I get the gospel so deeply. It's a daily thing. I go to bed at night, I lay my head on my pillow and I say, God, this is your world. I'm so glad to be in it. I'm so glad to be beloved by you. And I put my head down and I sleep and I sleep well. I'm a beloved child. Curl up just like a little baby in its parents' arms. But then when I wake in the morning, all that grace leaked out overnight. <laughs> And my feet hit the floor and my first thought is, you better hustle, Cortez, because you're worthless. And I make a list of all the things I better accomplish that day and I start checking them off and every time I check one off, I feel a little bit more valuable. And somewhere in the middle of the day, God interrupts, right, and says, will you stop it? You're my son. You're mine. Let's take a deep breath. Why don't you actually believe, right? So I'm asking you, have you experienced the gospel? Is it changing you? You know, Jesus, I am resting, resting in the joy of what thou art. I am finding out the greatness of thy loving heart. Take the book of John, you know, if you're struggling, if, if, if what I've said has helped you, take the book of John and just start to read it. Because you know who wrote that book? A disciple that said, a follower of Jesus who said, I am the one that Jesus, what? Loved. Just read it until you decide and you experience that you're the one he loves. 
Now, what I didn't get to say that I was supposed to say in this sermon is the same gospel changes the church. It doesn't just change us, it changes the community of the church. And real quickly, I'm just going to say it makes the church more honest for obvious reasons, right? I could say I grew up in the church my whole life. I never heard anybody confess their sins. But in an honest church, if you have the righteousness of Christ, you can stop pretending you're any good. You don't have any merit. So who are you trying to fool? And you can tell the truth. I've heard pastors tell the truth in this church. And sometimes I want to say, stop, that's too much. I'm going to have to fire you, you know. Um, they tell Adam, I mean, Michael Hart just stood up here last week, talked about yelling at his kids at a soccer game. Those little angels. You know, every pastor is just an overweight aerobics instructor. <laughs> right? Um, so the whole church can be more honest. We don't have to fake it. This gospel power produces a, a more selfless church. You know what they told John Bunyan? He wrote Pilgrim's Progress. They said, Bunyan, if you keep telling people, assuring people of God's love, then they will do whatever they want. They will just go out and sin wildly. And Bunyan said, no, if I can convince people of the love of God, they will do whatever God wants. $10 million over two years. How's it going to happen? I got four weeks to guilt you into it. <laughs> no. Do you know how that'll happen? You know how you'll give it? Because you want to. Because you love Jesus. Because you've tasted his love for you. It creates a more selfless church. We don't have to hang on to everything so tightly. We have a dad, right? We have a dad. He takes care of his kids. And it makes a church more welcoming. Um, you know, we don't have to be the people like who go into church and, and point out the tax collector and say, God, thank you didn't make me like that person. Um, I love this quote. David Cassidy said this about grace. He said, grace doesn't give a rip if we're a high school dropout or a PhD, a felon or a cop, a virgin or a porn star. We're all guilty of leading lives of rebellion and every intent of the thoughts of our hearts is only evil continually. We're all equally dead in our transgressions and sins. Yet there stands grace, waving its arms, grinning ear to ear, calling us all home. It throws open its door to holler, come one, come all, fools and wise men, penniless and powerful, Pharisees and publicans. Repent and believe. I've got a seat at my table for you. And this last line is so good. Grace is karma's worst nightmare. We get the exact opposite of what we deserve. A girl came to our church many years ago. She was a stunningly attractive kid and, and she came here because she made an absolute wreck out of her life. She'd had an affair with a married man. I think he had five kids and broke up his marriage and, and she's just lamenting this. And so she left that community. It was a small town and everybody knew and she was the scarlet woman. And, and she moved to Citrus County. It was a good place to kind of start over and and uh, she went to a church in our community and, 
and told them that story. And when she did, she just noticed the blood drained out of the face of the people. And, and she said, could, could this be a home for me? Could you help me? And they said, we don't think so. That's too much. They said, but we think you'd be better suited for Seven Rivers Church. That's actually what they said. Um, Seven Rivers isn't a great church. We're just broken people who have been greatly loved. So let's go campaign is a bold ask. It's not a bold ask of you. It's a bold ask of our father. God, what would happen if a, a whole church had a train wreck with your grace, the whole church at the same time? What would happen? I want to find out. So Seven Rivers Church, let's go. Amen. Father, do what you love to do. Drop your Holy Spirit on us busybodies hustling around to prove our worth and missing, missing the grace, missing the favor, missing the affection, missing the love that you've made all the provision for. Spirit of the living God, help us to taste, to thirst, to pant for the affection you've paid for, for your children. We pray, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Seven Rivers, please visit our website at sevenrivers.org.